I invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. We're coming uh, near to the end of this uh, wonderful letter, but we're going to slow down a little bit as uh, the writer, I I believe it's Barnabas, uh, the encourager, is now uh, applying in very specific practical ways uh, things that he's been talking about throughout the letter. If you remember, this is the letter uh, that highlights the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's written to people who are suffering, and uh, the way is hard. And, um, and we have this such, such wonderful encouragement in this letter that, that God is faithful, that Christ is sufficient, that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we are called to live in this world for the glory of God. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and we're going to continue through verse uh, 6. But we'll be looking specifically this morning at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 13. Let's give our attention to God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, now as we come to this sacred scripture, we... We ask, Lord, that for the Spirit to accompany, that we might have an understanding, uh, we might clearly hear the Lord himself speak to us uh, according to his truth and his grace. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel uh, that is able to uh, penetrate the darkness of this lost, blind world and to bring life and light. And we, Lord, look forward to receiving uh, those things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Honoring Marriage. Uh, You do not need to be a particularly astute student of the times uh, to know that the culture in which we live is radically and rapidly shifting. Uh, Even in the past five years, I think uh, there's been just an acceleration of a move against uh, the Lord's revealed will concerning marriage and sex and gender. Uh, It's hard to imagine, but the Obergefell, the infamous Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage, uh, that happened only three years ago. And yet it opened a floodgate for a full assault on a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality. And so beliefs that were once simply commonly assumed and honored as foundational principles of life and society are uh, increasingly castigated as oppressive and unjust and even immoral. If just give you one example, uh, when I was a boy, we took it for granted as an undisputed matter of fact that boys were boys and girls were girls and that was okay. Uh, <clears throat> actually, we thought it worked quite well. Today, such a notion is seen as oppressive and hateful. And I'm not making that up, and you know that. Which means that our text this morning, which um, on its face seems to be a very simple and uncontroversial call to honor marriage as God designed it, and to honor the marriage bed, in other words, to honor sexuality as God designed it, 
Uh, it would seem to be a very simple, straightforward text, and <clears throat> we, uh, as I came to it originally, I thought, you know, we can, we can have a nice sermon just discussing uh, marriage and, and, and sexuality. But, but this conversation happens in a context, a, a context in which we all live, in which we are being increasingly um, faced. Uh, and I think this morning, then, it requires that we spend a little bit of time uh, just realizing uh, that to hold to uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, is going to come at a cost. And some of you this morning already are beginning and uh, experiencing the cost of taking such a stance in deeply painful ways. The context, if uh, just quickly to remind us, Barnabas is writing to a suffering church, in a, a suffering church in a pagan world. Uh, and he's been reminding them of these wonderful gospel truths that uh, they belong to this a great band of pilgrims that we find all the way uh, through the scriptures, including Abraham and, and Moses and the Israelites, uh, people who realize that in this world we have no lasting city, but who do not despair over that, but have embarked on the great journey of faith looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God has called us to this journey. God has invaded this world of darkness and death in the person of Jesus Christ, who is life and light. Jesus is the great champion who broke through the bars of death that held us, and he's the great captain who's leading us from his throne on high out of bondage and into freedom and life and light. He's leading us to our eternal home. That's the gospel context that uh, we find this letter addressing, and the people uh, that are living in that difficult place are, are just called to remember who they are and whose they are, and we're called to remember the same. I, I just came across a, a great quote this past week from Theodore Epp, and he writes, Live as though Christ died yesterday, as though he were raised today and is coming back tomorrow. Live as though Christ died yesterday. The cross is that real, that present, that powerful. He was raised today. The victory that he has is that present, and he's coming back tomorrow. That's a great reminder of where we live theologically, spiritually, in truth, uh, as the people of God. But we live not only in that gospel reality, but we live in that gospel reality in a present cultural reality as well. And that's what this text um, reminds us of and speaks to. You'll notice that verse 14 has two parts. There's a command and then there's a motive, a reason. Uh, let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's the command. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's the motive. That's the reason. That's what we'll be looking at. But I want to begin this morning with just placing this text in the reality of the world that you and I now live in. Uh, we, we just need to be um, honest, willing to acknowledge and see that, that this text is an intensely controversial um, a, a text over which it really is on the front line of the, of the battle that the devil is waging against God and his good purposes. 
uh, to say things like uh, 13 verse 4 is uh, incredibly offensive uh, in the world in which we live, to the world in which we live. But it helps us to remember that the, the attacks that we're seeing take place are nothing new. That the early church that uh, is being addressed here in the uh, letter to the Hebrews faces almost identical issues. The Greco-Roman world of Asia Minor was an intensely pagan, a perversely pagan, hyper-sexualized culture. Um, The general working assumption of society was that marriage was for social position and for producing heirs, but sexual activity was purely for recreation, and, and uh, recreation that was utterly unbound by marital status. Marital status had nothing to do with who you would sleep with. And so homosexuality, temple prostitution, incest, orgies, and adultery were not only common, but commonly accepted as just the way it is. And we have an example of that in the church in Corinth. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks to them. Because a man in the church is, is sleeping with his father's wife. Now that, that sounds shocking to us. It was not shocking to the church in Corinth. It was widely known and apparently accepted. Now how could that be? Well, the reason that would be widely accepted is because that was simply cultural normative. Uh, that, that's how the world lived. That's, that didn't, didn't seem that strange to them. And so Paul has to rebuke them for their their arrogance and their apathy and their ignorance about the will of God in these things and and commands them to take action. They are failing. They were failing to to honor marriage in the marriage bed. One of the things we know about the early church is is that as it began to grow and spread, uh, it became noted for its countercultural sexual ethic. The world took notice, as Peter says, they find it strange that you do not join with them in their debauchery. Christians became known to be distinct, different, specifically in this area. One of the early church fathers wrote uh, in a letter to a local governor just kind of explaining the Christian faith and and how they, they live. He says, we share our meals, our homes, and our wealth, but not our wives. You need to make that clear in a culture uh, where um, there is no boundaries. But the church, you see, has accepted God's boundaries. Michael Kruger says one of the main ways that Christians stood out from their surrounding culture was their distinctive sexual behavior. Of course, this does not mean that Christians were perfect in this regard. No doubt, Christians committed sexual sins. But Christianity as a whole was committed to striving towards the sexual ethic laid out in Scripture and the world took notice. While it was not unusual for Roman citizens to have multiple sexual partners, homosexual encounters, and engagement with temple prostitutes, Christians stood out precisely because of their refusal to engage in these practices. (coughs) Excuse me. One of the tragedies of the the church in our day is that more and more professing Christians are compromising on marital and sexual ethics and willing to let go of what the Bible says about these things and accept 
the, the ethic of our culture. A recent Pew survey showed that in the past five years, the number of self-professing Christians who have accepted the idea of, com- of same-sex marriage has moved from 35% to 50, over 50%. That means that uh, if you hold to a biblical position <clears throat> that marriage should be between a man and a woman, you are in a minority position, and that is among professing Christians. If we're going to honor the marriage bed and keep the marriage bed undefiled, we're going to have to be committed to the biblical teaching on marriage. Uh, One recent uh, welcome summary of the biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality is found in the Nashville Statement that was uh, composed last summer, uh, 2017, and I believe that was handed out this morning uh, with the bulletins. I encourage you to read it, not right now, but uh, I think it's just a very simple summary of biblical truths, uh, things that the Bible teaches and that the church has believed um, throughout history. Piper, uh, John Piper, who wrote the, the preamble, um, says, as Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory and that his good purpose, purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. And so it just gives basic affirmations and denials, 14 of them. I'll read the first two because they deal specifically with marriage, and then secondly, the marriage bed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, first, we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. We deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polymorous uh, relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. Very basic, very simple truths. Article 2, concerning sexuality, we affirm that God's revealed will for all people is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. We deny that any affections, desires, or commitments ever justify sexual intercourse before or outside marriage, nor do they justify any form of sexual immorality. This is simple, basic ABC um, sexual ethic according to the Word of God. Tragically, incredibly, there was an immediate firestorm of opposition primarily from mainline gay-affirming churches and organizations. And I could give you countless examples of this. One, uh, Eliel Cruz, a a bisexual professing Christian, wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times titled, The Nashville Statement is an Attack on LGBT Christians. He writes, this week, an influential group of evangelical Christians publicly doubled down on intolerance in a message about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people that represents a renewed commitment to open bigotry. And so to hold forth what the Bible teaches about these things is to be charged by a Christian, professing Christian, uh, to be committed to open bigotry. One organization called Christians United uh, delivered their own statement. And in their statement, they said, we deny that Christ rejects anyone from his loving embrace because of their sexuality or gender identity. 
We likewise deny that homosexuality, bisexuality, queer sexuality, trans identity, asexuality, or any other queer identity is sinful, distorted, or outside of God's created intent. And the article then ends with a call for all Christians to unite against these hateful and hurtful notions of traditional Christianity. Rod Dreher, a social commentator, uh, Greek Orthodox, writes this, we need to get a grip on reality. We are the bad guys of the sexual revolution. We are the heretics of our time. There can be no doubt that in the world rapidly coming into being, to be known as a traditional Christian on this issue will subject you to loathing and will exact a tremendous social cost. A lot of people will yield and rationalize it, and those who will not yield will be made to pay. Brothers and sisters, I, I spend a little time on this because uh, that's where we are. And we should not be surprised as though something strange were happening to us. We are going to be required, you are going to be required at some point to make a decision and take a stance, either in your workplace or at school, and very likely in your own family. You're going to be faced uh, with these issues, and you're going to have a choice to make. And it's going to be a painful choice. Will you yield and rationalize your compromise and shift what you believe and think on these things in order to keep the family together, in order to keep peace, in order to keep your job? Or will you stand for God's word and will and let the world malign you as you stand for what God actually says. In coming uh, weeks, we're going to get to Hebrews 13, 13, which reminds us that to follow Jesus Christ is to follow him outside the camp and bury, bear the reproach that he endured. We need to realize, friends, that that's where we are, and some of you are in the middle of that right now, and the and the heartache that you experience is exactly as you watch um, the disintegration of relationships and, the, and the, um, the animosity maybe that you're experiencing from other professing Christians who are surprised that you're taking a biblical stance on these issues. Why can't we just love? Why can't we just accept? So we have to recognize what's going on. And we need to recognize, and I'll wrap with this, that this is, not a, this is not a battle about marriage or sexuality. It's not about family values, please. I read a statement about, uh, from another professed Christian organization called The Liturgist, and I think they've captured exactly what this is about. Their statement reads in part, we believe that all people have full autonomy over their bodies, sexual orientations, and gender identities, and the diversity of identities reflects the creative power of a loving God, which is a strange thing to say. If people have full autonomy over their bodies and sexual orientations and gender identities, why are we talking about the creative power of anyone other than the autonomous individual? 
But this is the rub. You see, this is a battle over autonomy. It's a battle over who gets the right, who has the right to determine how we live, who we marry, and what we do with our bodies. And the choices are two. Either the individual gets to decide or God gets to decide. That's the only two chances, only two choices you have. And that's what the battle is about. Who, is, who will be God? Who will be God? Who gets to say? You see, and the most fundamental, non-negotiable claim of the Christian faith is that God gets to say. Because he's God. And he's the creator. Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. And therefore, since God made us, he gets the right to define our identity. He gets the right to say what marriage is and what it is not. He gets the right to command a certain sexual behavior as pleasing in his sight, and he gets the right to judge what is not pleasing in his sight. That's what we've come to. Daniel Heinbach, in his excellent book, True Sexual Morality, says, when a person is at the crossroads deciding which way to go, he faces two, the same two challenges that Satan presented Eve in the Garden of Eden. The first challenge, did God actually say, question whether God's word is really authoritative and clear on these things. So you have men like Matthew Vine, who will do his utmost uh, to try to show that what the Bible seems to say, it doesn't really say. Has God really said? The second challenge, you will not surely die, attempts to set God's goodness over against his holiness. It comes down, he says, to deciding if biblical sexual morality, if God's sexual morality is indeed true sexual morality. That's what it comes down to. Does God get the right to say? If he does, if he does, then how shall we live? And that's the rule. You see, the command in Hebrews 13, 4 calls us, you and me, to honor God's intention for marriage and human sexuality. This is, uh, honoring marriage in the marriage bed, you see, isn't just a stance we take vis-a-vis the world, uh, contrary to the world. It's not a position, an idea. it's It's a lifestyle. It has to be a personal conviction. You see, it's, it's foolishness and hypocrisy to decry the devil's schemes that we see in the world if we are engaged in the devil's schemes in our personal life. One of the reasons the, church, the voice of the church sounds a little hollow on this issue is because in so many ways the church has adopted the world's way of thinking about marriage and sexuality. So what does it mean to honor marriage? What is, what is Barnabas trying to... Remind us. Well, it's, it just means that we personally understand and personally embrace God's good purpose in marriage. And, and that good purpose is summarized so neatly, succinctly in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we recognize that marriage is, a, is a created by God. It's, it's not a human institution first and foremost. And so we refuse cultural assumptions about marriage. In in other words, we understand that the romantic comedies that we so enjoy are lying. They're lying. Marriage is not about finding your soulmate. 
Some of you are stunned, maybe, by that. It's a lie. It's not what marriage is for. I don't find that in Genesis 2.24. I don't find it anywhere in the Bible. Um, marriage is not about uh, gaining personal satisfaction and fulfillment. That's, that's not what it's about. That's what the culture thinks it's about. And then, then the culture therefore says, and therefore since this marriage is not providing me those things, I'm going to go find my soulmate. I'm going to go find someone who does provide me those things. But you see, we can't disagree with the outcome of, uh, of that uh, false assumption if, we all, if we've already embraced the false assumption. Marriage is about learning, you see, how to, how to live for God, how to die to self, how to actually love someone else than yourself for real, and how to serve a wife and bless a husband and raise children if God grant them, and to do it all for the glory of God, rest, realizing that God is rescuing you in his call. G.K. Chesterton, I love this quote, he says, marriage is a duel to the death of which no man of honor should decline. And it's not, a mar- it's not a duel between the two of you. It's a duel with yourself. It's a duel with sin. It's a duel with chaos and brokenness. It's a, it's a duel to the death for the glory of God and the blessing of those God has given to you. Of course, you, you can live for the glory of God without being married. But if you're married, right, you need to understand what you're about. You need to understand what God calls you to do, what you're there for. And that's where we begin with, when it comes to honoring marriage. We begin by accepting and embracing and understanding God's purpose and design. And that means one of the things that, one of the ways the church has caved on this, you see, is when it comes to uh, the permanency of marriage. Hold fast is a covenant word that means you hold fast and you do not let go. It's it's, it's used of God uh, holding fast to his people and Israel's uh, command and, and obligation to hold fast to their God. You don't swap them out. Well, it's exactly the same in in our homes, our marriages. God does not allow divorce unless there is adultery or desertion of an unbelieving spouse. And apart from those things, Christians simply cannot act as though divorce were an option. The church sounds incredibly hollow in its protest of the breakdown of marriage when we've already accepted the world's practice regarding divorce. Some of you this morning are divorced through no choice of your own. And you know firsthand the evil that destroys a marriage. And our hearts go to you and let not any of us dare to castigate a brother or sister who's been so treated or assume that That could never happen to us. It just calls for a lot of humility, doesn't it? Honoring the marriage bed means a personal commitment to God's desire for human sexuality. That means our sexuality. And what we do with our mind, our hands, our bodies. God's will in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you learn how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's to be a a Christian style of sexuality, a way of being sexual that reflects the fact that we know God. 
And that's whether we're married or single. Honoring the marriage bed means that we have to be increasingly serious about the battle with pornography. We simply cannot pretend it doesn't impact us. Nor pretend that it is anything less than the devil's tool to destroy souls and to wreak havoc in marriage. I'm thrilled to see the ministries at Harvest Church for men and women that deal uh, head-on with the sin of pornography and, and do so with the power of the gospel. Positively, it means that we exalt God's good gift of sexuality and God's good purpose in the marriage bed so that we receive this very good gift um, of sacred, covenanted, sexual communion between a husband and a wife, and, and, and that we do that in view of the glory of God. And honoring the marriage bed, I believe, biblically, would also include the adoption, uh, the anticipation of, of fruitfulness, relationally and physically. Uh, God's purpose includes children. It just does. Be fruitful and multiply is a command specifically given to marriage, and that command is still in force. We've become a contraceptive culture that thinks very easily about sexual relations with no regard or thought to God's purpose. At least we need to wrestle with it, friends. And so I, to honor the marriage bed means delight in being a man who lives for the glory of God and a woman who lives for the glory of God and let the world see there's a better way than the debauchery all around us, the chaos and lies of the devil. Let's joyfully honor marriage and the marriage bed, and we'll wrap with this. Why should we do this? Well, he gives us a reason, verse 4. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Those are astonishing words in our day and age. The audacity to suggest that God will judge people simply because they do not follow his narrow, intolerant guidelines concerning sexuality and marriage. And yet that's what the text says. Uh, scripture is not ashamed uh, to let God be God and to remind us that God is a God who is holy and righteous and who will judge. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says this, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God come, comes upon the sons of disobedience. And there again, you, if you stand on that verse and you actually try to apply that, that verse with a broken heart for people you love who are making devastating decisions, you are going to be condemned. You're going to be assaulted. Your people will tell you, we just need to love them. And, and of course we do. Of course we do. And the world will ask, why do you care? Why are you so uptight? What does it matter to you who sleeps with whom? Or what gender people wish to call themselves and what choices they make regarding their sexual behavior? If no one is getting hurt and people are simply seeking happiness and if they're finding love, why should you care? And what gives you the right to condemn? And we need to understand, you see, if there is no God, and if there is no wrath being stored up for a day of judgment, 
then the world is exactly right. Get your nose out of their business. If there's no God, if there's no coming day of judgment, who are you? But if there is a God, an actual, real creator, maker of heaven and earth, who will judge men and women according to their deeds, if he's promised a day of judgment that is appointed unto every man once to die and then to face judgment, and he's also in marvelous love provided a glorious means of escape through his son Jesus Christ, then you see, how could we possibly talk about loving people and yet fail to warn them of these things and encourage them with the gospel? So let no one deceive you with empty words. And the airwaves and the newspapers and the blogs are full of empty words from professing Christians. To honor marriage in the marriage bed must mean that we, with tears in our eyes and with broken hearts, let God be God. And broken hearts not because... It is a, is a hard thing to acknowledge the reality of God, but broken hearts when we face and talk to people we love who refuse to do the same. That we believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do and that the doors of the kingdom will not be open to those who unrepentantly violate his good purpose concerning marriage. And that divine wrath is being stored up for those who live in unrepentant sexual sin. But once again, let's let judgment begin in Israel. These words are not written simply so that we sense the great danger of those out there who are living in unrepentant sexual immorality. They're written so that we can sense the danger of our own unrepentant sexual immorality. Let this be a great incentive. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let it be a, a real incentive to take seriously our own sexual sin our own lustful thoughts and attitudes and words and actions. Let's remember that our God is a holy Father, and he's called us to purity, and that means, friends, we have a battle to fight, and we've got a battle to fight with everything against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil have allied themselves in an amazing way to attack our purity. But we do not have to fight, friends. You see, with weapons of the world, we're not left powerless, but we can fight with the weapons of the gospel. And we have to, we, we start, the first step into this battle is to acknowledge that we are not people who are free of sexual sin. There's not a single adult in this room that can claim to be without sexual sin, including this man. But you see, what we proclaim is a Jesus Christ, the only pure man who ever lived, who came and died on a cross for those like you and me who've sinned grievously and thoughtlessly against marriage and the marriage bed. And he died both that we might be forgiven of the sin and that we might be set free from the sin. He died to make us holy. He died to make us pure. He died to teach us how to love, how to die to self. The Bible says, if the Son sets you free, friend, you shall be free indeed. Free to actually love God. Free to actually follow Christ. Free to actually serve and love your neighbor, beginning with your spouse. Free to say no to the passions that rage within you. 
by the power of God, submit to a Savior who loves you. One of the beautiful texts in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that, friends, is the gospel message that we have to proclaim to ourselves and then to a lost, confused, chaotic world, even when they persecute us. Let me close with another quote from Daniel Heimbeck, True true Sexual Morality. It says, God's last word on sex is wonderful and awful at the same time. What you do with God's what you do with God's gift of sex not only affects life now but your eternal destiny as well. Do you want sex that is totally pure and consistent with the holiness of God? Do you want to know the goodness of sex that is personal, exclusive, intimate, fruitful, selfless, complex and complementary? Do you want the blessings of abiding joy, genuine satisfaction, relationships that are truly personal, intimacy that actually fulfills? Would you like eternal life instead of eternal death? And choose God over your passions. Let him forgive your failures and give you the power to master sex on his terms. This sermon, this text, hits um, you in a lot of different ways. Some of you uh, are in the battle right now for your own purity. And I just want to encourage you that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ is the place to fight that battle. But you need, you need, to, you need help. And if you're sitting here this morning and wondering um, how come you feel so tormented inside and, and you so desperately want help and you're so terrified of being known, I just want you to know um, that's normal and it's okay, but do not stop there. We have, we have groups here at Harvest Church and men and women here at Harvest Church who walk that journey, who are walking that journey, who are ready and able to help you. Uh, we, have, we have men's groups and women's groups. Please, please, do not stay all by yourself, stuck in your addiction and in and, and, and your battle. Just don't stay there. Jesus Christ has come to set you free. And that freedom happens so beautifully when, when there's uh, just honesty and confession and the gospel's being applied and, and men and women are gathered around you to help you grow. That's one area. Uh, a second way this hits us is that we, are, we have families in this congregation with broken hearts today because um, someone in the family has come out and said, I'm gay or I'm transgender. And they profess to be a Christian. Maybe they don't, but often they do. And then we got to figure out how to make this work. And the stress, um, the, the heartache, the heartbreak of that is overwhelming. So how, how we deal with this uh, together, friends, this, this is the new world we live in. We're going to continue to face this. And, and, and my plea by the word of God is that we love each other well and we help each other. And that we recognize that we're doing this together. But we're holding each other. You see to Hebrews 13 verse 4 that this just sort of stands as a non-negotiable for us. 
And if we have to bear the reproach that, that Christ bore, remember it was also from someone in his inner group, from Judas, if we've got to bear the, 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 the taunts of, of, bro, of people who are brothers and sisters in Christ and, and the reproach of family members, we, I, just, I just call you today to trust that this is what the word of God calls us to do. For Christ's sake, to take a stand, not because we're better, not because we're stronger, not because we're, we're, we're more pure, but simply because we belong to our God. And, and we're under his rule, and we don't have other options. Either God is God or he's not God. And we can then with, with, with full humility and brokenness plead with those who've been deceived to come in repentance, to come back home, to come under the authority of the word of God. Let's just bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, right now, there are people with, um, with heavy, broken hearts because loved ones have been deceived, and they've been deceived by people who profess to believe the Bible and yet who've convinced them that homosexuality, transgender, divorce, whatever it might be, things that are clearly contrary to your word are actually okay. And Lord, it's, it's so hard, it's so painful. But Lord, I, I thank you that you remind us, blessed are you when people persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, for so persecuted they the prophets before you. That this is part of the call to stand when all the world would malign us and even beloved family members would rebuke us. Give us humility and the courage to stand. Lord, others, are, we're, we're, we're wrestling in a hard marriage. We're tempted to give up. And Lord, we need to be reminded that the call to honor marriage and the marriage bed is a call to your intentions for our marriage, not ours. And that, Lord, you, um, you take these things very seriously. And so, Lord, I pray that in the, in the hard marriages, there would be open doors of grace and humility, confession, kindness, and acknowledgement that we have a lot to learn, but that you've given us these hard marriages as places to learn and to grow, to die to self and to increasingly come alive to Jesus Christ. Father, some of us are suffering because of a broken marriage through no choice of our own, and Lord, our hearts are so heavy because, Lord, the evil that we've seen and, and maybe still endure in ways, and I just pray for our brothers and sisters who are divorced that, Lord, you give them just full grace and peace today. And Father, I pray for those who are struggling with sexual sin that, we know that you've, you've called us to holiness, and yet we, we fail so easily at holiness. I pray, Lord, that we would not give up on the gospel, but that we would believe that there is a power greater than anything we've known that's able to set us free, and that we would take advantage, Lord, then of what you've provided for us here in this church so that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and stand, Lord, in increasing strength for the glory of God and for the blessing of those around us. Father, we're, we're a broken, needy people this morning. And yet we thank you so much.
for the beauty and the power of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for the fact that you are the one leading us on this pilgrim journey. We thank you so much that one day we'll, we'll get home. So keep us walking in faithfulness and truth and grace till then. And may Jesus receive all the praise. Amen.